0: we'll get into Joel chapter 2. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and goodness. And Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom and cleanse us from sin and trespass. And Lord, we pray that you continue to direct and guide us, Lord, as uh, your church to learn your word, to learn to apply it to our lives, Lord. And Lord, that we look at the uh, world around us and we may be able to put our Bibles up and be able to tell, Lord, where we're at. And not for dates, but uh, to know where The world is in relationship to you and where the church is and and even our country, Lord. And so, Father, give us wisdom as we move through these verses in this chapter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Joel, chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Joel. Joel has uh, proclaimed the plague of the locusts. It was God's judgment on the people for their sin. And whenever God points out sin, is because he wants us to acknowledge it. He wants us to confess it. He wants us to abandon it so that we can be in fellowship with him and he can bless, direct, and guide us. All of us know what it is to be a child and to be a young person and to be in bad relationships with parents when we're in good relationship with parents, and when we're in good relationship with our parents, there's no tension, there's peace, there's joy, there's freedom, there's privilege, there's blessing. Um, When we are not in good relationship with our parents, all those things are removed. They're on the table, so to speak. Now, at times, because we are younger than our parents and we haven't lived long enough, we are convinced that our parents are simply there to make our life miserable, and that um, they just don't really love us. But as we grow older and then we become parents, we realize um, that we were completely wrong. And hopefully before you become a parent, you can see that. But the parallel is the same, even as the people of God. We come to be born again as new creatures, babes in Christ, we begin to grow and mature and develop into our young adulthood spiritually and into hopefully moving from young men to adults to fathers and mothers where we are grounded and solid. And we can move through those things even as we did through our life and that we can move in them in a normal, natural level and speed of maturity rather than um, wasting so much time as we see sometimes young people They waste a lot of their lives. They just, um, rather than having legitimate years of teen years from 13 to 19 or 20 to learn and to grow, um, some of them just party till their 30s, 35. They just never grow up. Um, I think Vegas is just one big high school campus. That's all Vegas is. And God would want us to acknowledge the things that we know are wrong against him and that he will bless us for that. He will cleanse us and he will push us forward. And really, this is what Joel, the prophet, and all the prophets were doing, calling back the people of God uh, to turn from their sin. Now, Joel moves into chapter 2, which continues the literal and adds the prophetical through symbols, figures. And metaphors and again, short-term and long-term, even as we pointed out this morning. But here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, you have the call to proclaim the day of the Lord. Verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm of my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand. The watchman of the city would blow when there was danger. He would be watching the sentinel. Armies would approach with threat. They would blow the alarm. The method of trumpets is Old Testament. Israel, back in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 10, we had uh, trumpets, and they were used for different things, for the calling up of the armies, for the retreat of the armies, for the blowing of festivals and feast days. For um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, for many different things, uh, and certainly for alarm. Uh, Hosea one spoke about it, uh, um, about blowing the alarm. And so here again, the context is is the warning of the Day of the Lord. This is the first appearance here of the Day of the Lord for um, um, Joel. As you know, he is a prophet of of the Day of the Lord. Uh, he coined the phrase. Um, the next one we'll see is uh, chapter 1, verse 15. There's five altogether, And one in chapter 3, verse 18 simply said, That day. Over 75 times this phrase is found throughout the Old Testament. The day of the Lord, that day, the great day, the day. Many phrases like that. And so here the location, notice is Zion, the holy mountain, Jerusalem. So... The announcement is to Israel. Often people are trying to make prophetic uh, judgments and, and declarations about what's going on in America, what's going on, you know, in, in Europe and stuff like that. Listen, the key to prophecy is Israel. What goes on here doesn't matter. What's going to happen is going to happen over there. Israel is the key to prophecy. That's where the Lord's going to come back. That's why it's the safest place on the earth right now. (laughs) It's His land. Okay? The Jews will be in trouble only when the Antichrist comes. Until then, they'll be alright. They're safer than the United States. Safer than any nation in the world right now. Because my Bible tells me that Israel will be a nation when the day of the Lord begins. I know that very clearly. And so here the people involved are the inhabitants of the land. They're to tremble because the awesomeness of this day. This is not a day of blessing. In the book of Amos, we'll get there where the people say, Oh, yeah, the day of the Lord. And Amos says, The day of the Lord is terrible. Darkness, gloom, judgment. What are you guys talking about? The reason being for the day of the Lord is coming. It says it's at hand. Long-term might the tribulation period. And again, this is the second time that it's mentioned. Now, look at verse 2. He says, and he defines it here, describing it, a day of darkness, a day of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. People come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many, successive generations. Now you pay attention to what is said in the verse, the context, and it'll help you to identify what what, and where it's, it's going to be taking place. Notice verse 2 here, the character of the day is described, a day of darkness and destruction. Uh, the description of people is great and strong. The day of the Lord that begins at the rapture of the church initiates the seven-year tribulation and great tribulation, the period of God's wrath, known as Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Daniel 9, 27. Now, Russia in the latter days, as you know, will attack Israel at the very same time the rapture happens. Both events happen simultaneously, which begins the day of the Lord. Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine. God says He puts His hooks in the jaws and He draws them forth. They come to take spoil and plunder. Um, the Dead Sea is a, a, an incredible uh, wealth of minerals and everything else. Um, they keep finding. I uh, just found. I don't. I, remember, I forget how big of resources of natural gas right off Cyprus. They're finding oil. There's a lot of natural resources, and Russia will come down to try to get those. And God will rise up and defend Israel. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are very, very clear. All the specifics are given to us there. But this army, notice, it says, is distinct from any other. This is what you have to pay attention. Okay, now we know the armies that happened before Joel. And we know the armies that happened after Joel. And we know the armies that have happened in our history and behind. But this one is so distinct. It says, like of whom has never been or will there ever be any such after them? This is probably the last battle, the battle of Armageddon. Then, because there's no more like it. There's none worse. So this helps me to determine, is it Ezekiel 38, 39? Or is it the battle of Armageddon? Well, what it's saying, I would put it as a battle of Armageddon. Because it's the ultimate and the last of its kind. Not like it. Okay? And this is prophecy going forward. Um, and, and that kind of helps you to to learn how to look at things. You It's inductive Bible study. You only take what's in there. You don't read into it. But you let it give you the information. It's just like when there's a detective scene, a crime scene. They cord it off. And they look within that parameter... All the evidence is in there. They don't go look three miles down the road. It's all in there. Everything you can find out about the book of Joel is in the book of Joel, three chapters. There may be some cross-references, whether prophets may make a reference to Joel, but everything is in the book of Joel. So every verse, you, you, you sift it with a comb and you look at it and what does it say to who is it saying? You know, what is the tense? Is it present, past, is it future? Uh, what is it saying about the army? All these things, these questions you have to look at so you understand. Now, from verse 3 down to 10, now we move into the literal effects of the plague of the, of the locusts. But they prefigure the horrible day of the great tribulation, having a short-term and a long-term prophecy again. It's literal, but it's prophetical also. In verse uh, 3, he says, A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Now, remember that as he's saying this, the prophet Joel is looking back now to what he has laid in chapter 1. The animals, the pastures, the flocks of sheep, the trees, had been affected by the drought and fire. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 18 and 20, it picks right up from there. Okay? So he speaks about the day the Lord jumped into the future, and he's coming back. But even as he's coming back and he's using the literal plague of locusts, to deal with the present situation, it still has a twofold application that it's looking forward. Nothing escapes them, notice it says, devouring everything by the contrast of the Garden of Eden and the wilderness. Something, it's not saying it's literally the Garden of Eden, but that it's like, in other words, it's plush, there's all kinds of vegetation, and then all of a sudden there's nothing describing. The, uh, the severe thing. Seven times the word like is repeated from verse 3 to verse 7. A figure of speech is called a simile. A simile is that figure of speech that is used to describe something literal, but it's described in a figurative sense. Fast as lightning or like lightning. So it's introduced by as or like, the two words. Right here, it's like, seven times. So as he's describing this, their literal locusts. Some of the commentators try to find in this passage the literal army of Assyria that's going to come down the road. But there's no evidence to that at all. But he's talking about the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, there is a prophetic projection forward, but it's not of Assyria, but it's of the great tribulation, of one of two battles, either Ezekiel 38 and 39, or the battle of Armageddon. And the context will show us which one it is. Notice in verse 4, he says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. So in verse 4, again, these are locusts, and if you look at a locust. It has kind of a face of a horse. In fact, the German word means horse. (laughs) Okay? Um, If you ever look at at a a dragonfly, um, in Spanish you call it caballo del diablo, horse of the devil. (laughs) Okay? And if you look at it real close, so again, the, 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 the similarities. But here again, Um, he's describing these locusts as they have devoured and stripped everything. In verse five, he says, with with a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire. They devour, um, that devours a stubble like a strong people set in battle array. And so in verse five, their awesome number sounds like a running of chariots. The crackling of fire consuming the wood. Powerful as strong people arrayed for battle. Once again, the devastation, the trees, the plants. He's enumerated them and named them in chapter 1. Look at verse 6. He says, before them, the people risk. In pain, all faces are drained of color. So in verse 6 here, he's talking about the effect of the people's utter fear and horror. Their faces drain drained of color, meaning blackness or death. Just shock and the devastation. Now, I was going to give you all kinds of statistics about them, but you look them up in in your internet, okay? About the plagues that have happened out in Arabia in that area of the Middle East. Throughout the centuries of these plagues and what these uh, critters do to, to fields. Uh, we even have had them here in the United States. And they just devour things. They leave nothing, the f- four stages of, uh, of these guys. And they just neuter everything and there's, there's nothing left behind them. In verse 7 through 9, um, they're persistent and overwhelming ranks like mighty men of, of war. Um, are given to us and and they don't break any ranks look at 7 through 9 he says they run like mighty men they climb the wall like men of war everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks they do not push one another everyone marches in their own column though they uh, lunge between the weapons they are not cut down in other words their own little sharp teeth and all that they, they they don't hurt each other. They, they go right through it. Um, and, and they run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. All these like, like, like similes. They're literal locusts. But at the same time as we look at these verses, Proverbs 30 verse 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Isn't it interesting how God created all the animals of the world and they, they, they just instinctively know what to do, how to do it, when not to do it, and how long to do it. When birds fly in migration and, and, and grows, they, they fly in a V pattern. Do you know why? Because they're cutting through the wind. You say, why don't they get lined up right behind each other? Have you ever seen birds fly right behind? Never. Why in a V? Because that first guy gets in the front and he takes the brunt of the wind. As it hits him, that wind, like your car windshield, deflects it upward. It goes out to the side. So the next guys beside his left and his right get less resistance. The guy behind them, less. To the point to where somewhere down the road back, they're all just dragging On their speed. Just like when your car goes next to an 18-wheeler and you just drag behind them. Same thing. And then what happens is, when this guy in front gets tired, he drops back to the back and they all move up. And they all alternate. Now, did they go to the University of Birds? It's amazing. God's creation the same with hibernation and everything else. It is amazing. Totally, totally amazing. Notice verse 10. He says, the earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The vast number of these guys just eclipse the sun. Make it dark. Again, many times in history, look up in the uh, type and locusts and blocking of the sun and everything. And this is a reality. This is nothing new. This is God just using the creation he has made to do his bidding at times in judgment. We often hear in the Old Testament where God used the animals to punish the northern kingdom because of their idolatry. Okay? So, for God to have an animal bring judgment on you if you were living in those days or even in these days, it's no big deal. God can bring judgment any way He wants. He can just look down and that's it. You know, you just go to sleep and He just takes away your ability to breathe without thinking. You'll never get up. You got voluntary muscles and involuntary muscles. Thank God we don't have to think to breathe or we die. Now, there are some people that have apnea and they stop breathing. So they have to go through some tests and put some masks and sleep with some instruments so they won't stop breathing, okay? So, uh, God is in control. Now, look at verse 11. He says, The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes the word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So once again, the locust judgment is literal, present, going on. But short term wise, but long term wise, he's speaking to it, especially this verse here, verse eleven, the two meaning of it. God is uh, the commander of the locusts and they obey his voice in judgment. And God is the commander who gives voice before his army to destroy the armies of the world in Armageddon. You see? He will also do that with with Russia in Ezekiel 38 and 39, at the beginning of the tribulation. But this is the day of the Lord, right? So he will do it for the beginning for Russia. He'll do it at the battle of Armageddon at the end. Because notice there in verse 11, he says that they are strong, uh, um, for strong is the one who executes his word, and it is the great and very terrible day who can endure it. No one at all. The Russian army with its Islamic confederacy will not endure it. And the entire world's army that are gathered there in the valley of Megiddo to stop Jesus from setting up the kingdom, they will not endure. They will not stop Jesus from doing that. And so Joel is speaking literally, but prophetically also. Using figurative language, metaphors, and he's hitting both sides. Now, in verse 12... Down to 17, you have the call to repentance because he's called judgment, right? Because of their sin. He's jumped into the future, the day of the Lord. Now in verse 12 through 17, you have the call to repentance. In 12 through 14, the Lord calls out the God uh, for godly sorrow and repentance, not mere remorse. Verse 12 says, Now therefore, say, says the Lord, turn to me with all your hearts, with fastings, with weepings, and with mournings. So rent your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Look at verse 12. God desires that they turn to him with all their heart, implying genuine repentance, acknowledging their sin that he's been talking about in chapter 1 and now in chapter 2. Repentance the change of mind with a change of heart that brings a change of life. 2 Corinthians 7.10, we, we, our repentance is, is genuine. We are glad that we repented. We don't regret that we repented. The worldly regret is sorrow that brings forth death. Worldly regret hates what happened, the consequence. You cry for the consequence. You cry because you got busted. You cry because you went to jail. You cry because... Your wife or husband won't forgive you in adultery. But not for the sin itself. Not for what you did. And so after the tears are gone, and after all the emotion and drama is gone, you're right back to it all over again. That's the worldly form of repentance, which is just mere regret. Godly repentance is the acknowledgement of the evil, first against God. Second against the person. With the person, against the person. And when that happens, then there's genuine acknowledgement. Acknowledgement and confession of the sin. And and a plea for forgiveness of the sin. Now, when we're dealing with man, forgiveness is not always imparted to us. It's just the way it is. With God, if we're genuine, He always forgives us. And he buries our sin. With man, that's not always the case. Sometimes men and women don't want to forgive. God looks at the heart. Again, 1 Samuel 16, 7. God knows whether we're genuine or not, whether we're sincere. And so, in verse 12 there, God desires the outward signs also of true inward repentance, with fastings, weeping, and with mourning. Now, you can fast, not be able to eat, you can weep, and you can be all mourning and everything else. But again, it can be just because of the consequences. So, he's saying, let's make sure these outward signs match the inward brokenness. Because you can manifest the outward signs and not be broken inside. Not really Being sorry for the sin or whatever has happened. The command is to rent their hearts, not their garments, and return to Yahweh. Verse 13. In the Old Testament it says, rent your heart, not your garments. Here again he repeats it. Circumcise your heart. Because the heart tells God who I really am. Guard your heart for out of it comes issues of life. Our heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9 says. And nothing will reveal the evilness of our heart but time. When we first start out in life and we're nice, innocent little kids, even there we can see it. It's curtailed. It's disciplined by our parents and by society. At least it used to be. I don't know about today. But as you move through life, you become very wise concerning evil and of guarding yourself and of being able to put an act. Presenting yourself as something you're really not and when there's really hatred in your heart and you in fact are presenting yourself as someone who just really cares for this person. And so the important thing is that the inside matches the outside. Or should I say the outside match, the inside, the genuine part of us. And that's always the struggle. It's always the challenging thing. Satan is there to, to try to corrupt me, to cause me to disobey. And then I'm there either to listen or to not to listen. I'm the one that has to put on the mind of Christ. I'm the one that has to put on the armor of God. I'm the one that has to bring my thoughts into captivity. I'm the one that has to humble myself before God. Nobody can do that for me. And nobody will receive the benefit. Nobody will have the joy and the peace that I get from that. I receive it. My obedience doesn't help you have peace. My sin doesn't make your peace be gone. So we sow and we reap. We love to blame. And sometimes there is legitimate accusations and faults of others for certain things. But... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the whole politically correctness and psychological babble that we're always blaming others, dysfunctionalism and blaming our parents. And, And like in the days of Jeremiah, they were saying our parents ate sour grapes and our teeth are on edge. It's the same thing. It's not my fault. The majority of things are our fault in our life. We make decisions. We make choices. Whether we go along with it, whether we resist it and then give in, whatever it is. I am responsible for the decisions in my life. And so the renting of the heart, the most important, broken and contrite heart in Psalm fifty one seventeen, David. Poverty is spirit, Jesus said in Matthew five three, the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is that notice that God is gracious, merciful, Full of compassion, Exodus thirty-four, six through seven. Slow to anger, ingrating kindness, hesitant, steadfast love. He relents from doing harm. If there is repentant like David, God doesn't want to judge. God wants to bless. God wants to forgive. God wants to impart wisdom, strength, direction. Kindness. It's an unnatural way for God to deal in judgment, Isaiah tells us. He would much rather. So much so that he sent the son to die for us, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So much so that as he hung on the cross, he ministered to the two that were hanging on the cross. One of them accepted, the other one rejected. The two on the cross deserve what they were accused of and found guilty of. Jesus was completely innocent. And yet Jesus was dying in their place at that same time. So when you and I look to Jesus, we look to the cross, it should humble us. It should um, allow us to see ourselves as debtors to God. But even though we understand that, even though we acknowledge that, even though we are cut to the heart by that, When things happen to us, that's not our first response all the time. The first response at times is the flesh. And we want to harden our hearts. And that's something we have to deal with every day of our life. Every year of our life. Because you and I have sin nature and it will never go away until I give my last breath. That is going to be such a great day. <laughs> no more warfare. No more old man. <laughs> I'll be instantly present before the Lord. You're going to hear a big sigh from X. <sighs> Done. That's it. Notice. Verse 14, he says, Who knows if he will turn and relent? This is the prophet speaking. And leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So here, Joel, in verse 14, he says, "Um, Who knows? If you do repent, God may forgive you. Maybe you haven't gone that far. You remember that Jonah went to Nineveh. And uh, they repented on a maybe. The king said, hey, maybe God will forgive us. Now, Jonah was not the the like Billy Graham. <laughs> he just went through the city and said, 40 days and you're dead. And then he went outside the city and he sat there to see if God was really going to save them. And God did. The entire city repented. And Jonah was so angry. That's why he fled from God. Because he knew if he preached the gospel, or the gospel in the Old Testament sense, the word of God, and they repented, God would forgive them. He didn't want them to be forgiven. Jonah didn't want to see them in heaven. Kind of strange for a preacher, huh? And you know the story. God grabbed the whale and swallowed him up and then burped him up. A lot of miracles in the book of Jonah. We'll be getting to it. But he was, and then the book finishes on a rhetorical question. Should I not be merciful with all these thousands of kids that can't tell their left from the right hand? Here's the answer. Yes. But it leaves it like that. Because you and I are going to read that book. And you and I have to say Yes or no. You see, we can understand why God saved me. But you, I'm not too sure about. I can understand why God is patient with me. You, I wouldn't be patient with you the way God is. That's you and I. That's the heart of man. We can all be very nice when everything's congenial and nice and sanitized. It's when the bloods and guts start flying. That's when we find out how bad we really are. <laughs> and whether we will trust the Lord to empower us to do what we can't do for ourselves. That's where the rubber meets the road. And so, God is... Wanting to, he said, maybe he'll leave you and he'll bless you with some harvest, and then you can thank him by offering him a grain and drink offering. Who knows? Maybe God will do it. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, Ezekiel, God speaking through him he says, "As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die?" Oh, house of Israel. That's God speaking. That's God speaking to every sinner. God does not delight in judgment. He wants to forgive. Now notice verse 15 through 17. You have the summon of all the people to respond to God's offer to repent. Verse 15 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from the chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let all the priests who minister to the Lord weep before the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Now, the prophet has proclaimed the charges. The prophet has proclaimed the need of repentance. Repentance. Now they're to respond. That is always it. said. God always initiates. We respond. Always. In 15, the command is threefold. They are to blow the trumpet and summon the people to Zion. Okay? So once again, it's dealing with Israel. Okay? The people that he's dealing with right there in Judah, in Jerusalem. They were to consecrate a fast to deny themselves. There was really never any national fast in the law. You could fast two, three times a day, but I mean, there was no real command for it. Uh, Fasting can be done in two ways. First here, as a demonstration of your true contrition, of true brokenness, that you do acknowledge the evil you've done against God, and you deny yourself to show your sorrow. Or because maybe you're seeking the Lord for something and you want Him to speak to you, and so you fast a day or two or whatever it may be, So that you can give yourself simply to prayer and fasting that God will speak to you. Not that fasting makes God, oh, look at him, he's starving. I better answer him. Not that. That's not what it is. But it's simply so that I'm not distracted from things and I remember that I'm just seeking the Lord. That's all it is. Notice in 16, the entire nation bore the guilt of sin. They were to gather the people and sanctify or set them apart, the congregation. The word sanctification means to be set apart. They were to gather the children, the babes, the bridegroom, the bride from their wedding plans. Everything's supposed to be suspended. This is critical. This is dealing with... Listen to me. When you're in sin, when I'm in sin, when there's sin that's going on in people's lives, don't procrastinate. Don't think that whatever you're doing is more important than coming to God and dealing with that sin. It is priority. It is very, very important. In 17, the priests were to intercede for all the people. The priests were commanded who ministered to the Lord Yahweh. They were to weep with genuine contrition between the porch and the altar where they would minister to the Lord. The priests were also commanded to cry out to God, for three things. In verse 17. At the end there. To have pity, compassion. Spare your people, Lord Yahweh. Th- this is what he's telling them to ask for. This is not what. They can't. They didn't come up with it. The prophets tell them what to do. This is how you approach God. Second. To not be scorned. Giving them his heritage to reproach. Because that's what was happening right now. And thirdly. To not be subjected to other nations, that the nation should rule over them. So he gives them how to approach God, what to say to him. These are the important things. And notice, to not let them be mocked. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? You remember through the prophets, we often read that the people would go by Jerusalem After the Babylonian captivity and they would hiss and say, yeah, it's all filled with weeds and it's all dilapidated because they turned their back on their God and they would mock them. You see? If you think um, times have changed, you're rudely wrong. You just have a Christian make a big mistake and you watch what the secular media does Especially if they are in the public eye. They will crucify them. And yet, a liberal, moral, immoral pagan will do something a hundred times worse. It will be no big deal because they don't claim to be Christians. So they don't have to be held responsible. That's the world we're living in today. There was a time where there were morals and ethics... Today, it's the Christian, the conservative, the patriot, the veteran that is being marginalized, targeted, and destroyed. Because they're thinking people, but not quacking ducks. That makes a big difference. You see, the people in authority don't want any waves made. They want the least amount of resistance. And so there's a price to pay always for standing up for truth, for right and wrong. It has always been in every generation. The countries differ, the laws may differ, the form of government, but there's always those who bow and those who stand. Those who stand usually pay a price. Those who bow, pay the biggest price. They just don't know it. You see, if I stand, then that means that I only bow to God on what's right and what's wrong. I never bow to man. To God, we bow all the time. To man, we don't bow. Absolutely not. Now, verse 18 down to 27, you have the promise of restoration through repentance, okay? Because this is what he's dealing with. Verses 18 to 20, the grace and mercy of God are given to us. He says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, if you respond to repentance, and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. You will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. And so repentance would cause God to have zeal and holy envy to defend His land and be merciful to His people. This is how God responds to true contrition, to true repentance. This applies in short term to the people of Joel's day that he's speaking to. But long term for the day of the Lord. For all the things that will be coming upon them. Jesus spoke about it in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Then you have the entire book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 19. The horrible things that are going to come. The, the seven um, seals, trumpets, and the bowls. Horrible things. We saw some of them this morning. But then notice in 19, Yahweh would answer their prayers. He tells them He would provide grain, new wine and oil, indicating abundance of blessing that they would be satisfied in. This is the heart of God. He wants to get rid of the obstacle that hinders us from fellowship sin so that He can bestow blessing. So He can speak to us, so He can comfort us, so He can strengthen us. The Lord would not have them to be scorned by the nations. Because now they're walking with God. Now they're for God. And therefore God will be for them. See, it's not so much that I say that I'm for God. The important thing is God for me. That's the question. Any one of us can say, oh yeah, I know the Lord. Yeah, I'm for God. That's not the important confession. The important one is when it comes from God. And he says, I know him. I'm for him. That's the important thing. And I'm able to judge that by my conduct, by my life, my obedience to the word of God. And how I respond to God's word. Very, very important. Now look at 20. He says, but I will remove far from you the northern army. And I will drive him away into the barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. So in verse 20, God would remove the locusts. They came from the north and God would drive them to the desert. The word army there. Is yours italicized? Mine is. That tells you it's not in the original manuscript. Okay? They've taken the liberty to put it in. And so many people have taken this word army there, though it's italicized, and they interpret it to mean the army of the north, meaning Assyria. Well, that's completely out of context here. The army he's talking about is the locust. He would drive them away. The locust's face would be towards the Eastern Sea, the Dead Sea, and his back towards the Western Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Their stench and their foul order would rise for their destructiveness. You can imagine just all of them dying at one time. You remember in the book of Exodus when. God plagued Egypt with all the different plagues. remember the frogs and they stunk maybe you 've been out to the desert or something like that, or some place where there was a lot of frogs in that season or something like that, and a whole bunch of them died or something and it just it 's just foul, and this is what it 's talking about now in twenty one to twenty four the promise of God to restore. The natural blessings is given to us. 21 says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beast of the field. For the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree, the vine, yields their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the former rains Faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rains and the latter rains in the first month. So, here down to verse um, 23, in in 21, um, again he's talking about in the future. As he deals with this. God addresses the land to be glad, rejoicing over marvelous things of God. They're they, they, they are being devastated right now. The animals would are not to fear in the field. The fruit trees are going to be giving all their yield and all that's going to be food for them. And God tells the children of Zion to be glad and rejoice. Because His God's going to return the, litter, the latter and the former rains. So you have there the latter rains. These are literal rains. You can't spiritualize them. The early rains are in October. Uh, and the latter rains um, in April. And they needed those rains for them to have a good harvest. Uh, those things are promised in Leviticus 26, 3 and 4. Deuteronomy eleven, fourteen through 17. And they're mentioned throughout the prophets. These again are with the chapters of Deuteronomy 27, 28 and Leviticus 26. The blessings and the cursings that were given to them before they went to the promised land. And God says, if you do this, I will do this. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. So learn the rules and let's go into the promised land. (laughs) Wow. God will provide abundance of wheat an overflowing new wine and oil. Look at 24. He says the threshing floor shall be full of wheat and the vat uh, shall overflow with new wine and oil. So again, the judgment of the day of Joel. And at times he jumps into the future for the day of the Lord. In verse 25 to 27, you have the promise of God to make up for the lost blessings of the past. Listen carefully. Verse 25 says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten and the crawling locust." the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Here again is a description from chapter 1 of the four stages of the grasshoppers, literally, or the locusts here, that they just neutered everything, just devastated it. And um, God calls it his great army. It's in judgment. And notice in verse 26 says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wonderfully, wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. All of this has not happened to Israel. It's future. Now, the locusts had devoured and destroyed, as I said, everything, God's army. Once again... We have the different stages, as as I shared. And the promise is to restore that which was lost. In a practical application, we see this in God's mercy towards our life. Some of us spend a lot of years in the world. And the canker worm ate a lot of years away whether it was just hanging out with the wrong crowd, whether it was through drinking or drugs or being promiscuous, whatever it was. And we lost a lot. We lost a lot of precious time, a lot of good relationships. We lost our innocence, many different things. And then we came to the Lord and He made us new in Christ. And He gave us that new hope. And as we walked with Him, we turned to Him and we looked to Him he has blessed us. We are overjoyed with the abundance of God's kindness and his goodness. We've come in contact with people that love us, people that care about us, people that 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 have the same mind as us. And what a blessing the church is. Now, are they hypocrites in the church? Absolutely. If you think everybody that comes here weighs a halo, you're crazy. The only thing that holds up some people's halos that come here is their horns. Just the way it is. But what a blessing God has given to us to give us those years back. To remove that stuff that there's no condemnation. That we can praise God for His goodness, for saving us. That He can use our life to reach out to others... And to show them what God can do with someone as common as myself. And as rotten as myself. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. I think of my mom and dad, the different problems they had through the years as they were married. And God's faithfulness to save both my mom and dad in their older age. Giving them back the years the cankerworm had eaten. How gracious is that? God is so good. I mean, certainly none of us deserve that. Look at the thief of the cross. Right at the last second. The last hours. God's goodness. And this is what God does. This is what He does. This is the type of God we serve. Now in 28 down to 32, we looked at that in depth this morning. I'm not going to belabor it. You can get the message if you want. But here you have the promise of God's Spirit um, to be poured out. Interesting, and I didn't mention it this morning, but verse 28 to 32 in the Hebrew Bible is one complete separate chapter. It's chapter 3. And chapter 3 in our Bible is chapter 4 in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, it is so significant, so different, that they give it a complete different chapter. And I think it's proper. Because it's prophetic so much of the short-term fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit. In distinction from the last outpouring, which would be at the end of the tribulation period, and so verse twenty and twenty nine, he has a short term prophecy. He says, "And it shall come to pass afterwards, okay, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my servants and my uh, my manservants and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days." And so the, the short-term fulfillment is the day of Pentecost, as we shared. Peter, in the day of Pentecost, there in Acts chapter 2, as he, uh, he was accused of being drunk, as they were filled with the Spirit of God, and they spoke in their own dialects uh, of, of the people who were there. Um, God, God was blessing them and using them. And here, the short-term fulfillment. Uh, in the Old Testament, not everybody had the Spirit of God, as we said this morning. Only kings, priests, and prophets and special people for the tabernacle to do certain furnishings and that. But now in the New Testament, every person who is born again, who repents, receives the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus encouraged the disciples to wait in Jerusalem, Acts one eight to be in due with power from on high, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Acts one five he calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many people object to that phrase. Why? Jesus gave it to us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for empowerment. If you do not have power in your life to live the life of Christ, then you need to pray that God baptize you in the Holy Spirit. How do you do it? The same way you got saved. Ask. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more for those who ask God for the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us. And he's talking to believers. So he's talking a distinct experience from being born again. You go to Samaria in Acts 8. They were born again. They came down. They asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, wait a minute. We're born again. The Holy Spirit is in them, but not the baptism. And they laid hands on them, prayed for them. They were baptized. Just sort of simple. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. Assemblies of God, four square, Pentecostal circles, always teach that. Not so. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for empowerment. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Sometimes gifts are associated with the baptism, but the baptism is not any one gift. Yet it's associated with gifts often. So it's very, very important. So here again, uh, no distinction. Greek, Jew, Gentile, Scythian, Barbarian, male, female, free, slave. No distinction now. Every person who repents and is born again and calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved in the Spirit of God will make us abode in them, and our bodies become the temple of God. And so there in chapter um, 2, Peter um, uh, speaks about that that period of time for the short fulfillment. And then here in verse 30, And I will uh, show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the, more of the the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter quoted all this. Remember, I said that this morning. The signs and wonders didn't happen that are mentioned here. And Peter didn't stop to explain it or to say, by the way, these happen afterwards. He just quoted it. These will take place in the great tribulation. The natural phenomena that's going to happen in the heavens and the earth. And notice that in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter quoted the first part of verse 32. But he didn't quote the last half of 32. Why? Because the last half of 32 is for the remnant of Israel at the end Of the tribulation period, the great tribulation. Listen to his words. He says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So the future fulfillment before the Lord's return. All this natural phenomena will take place as the wrath of God comes from the throne of God. Revelation chapter 6 to 19. You get the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Peter acknowledged this. He took up the, the preaching of Jesus in Acts 2. Share with them all this. He didn't make the distinction. And yet, Jesus predicted all these signs also. In Matthew 24, 29 through 31. In Mark 13, 24 through 36. In Luke 21, 25 through 28. And they speak of the last days, the tribulation period. The church is removed. That begins the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has many events, remember. It begins with the rapture of the church, Russia attacking. He destroys that army. The Antichrist appears. They make a covenant Israel makes a covenant with him. The first three and a half years, false peace and safety. He builds their temple. He goes in. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse one through twelve. He declares himself God, and he says himself as God. And then Israel flees to the wilderness, Revelation twelve, six, because they see they've been deceived. Now it's great tribulation. He offers the abomination of desolation himself as God. Now you have the mark of the beast. Everybody has to accept it, buy or sell anything. If you don't, then you're beheaded. You're killed. At the end of the last three and a half years of great tribulation, then Jesus comes back with his church to fight the battle of Armageddon, to make the judgment of the nations, to bind Satan for a thousand years, and to set up the kingdom. Wow. So, the end of 32... It's still to happen long-term wise. You see how Joel is literal, but also prophetical. And when he uses figurative language, it doesn't mean it's not real or that it's not literal. Okay? And so, we have um, one more chapter to go. And we'll see there more greater detail of Great Tribulation and the Millennial Kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Dear, with our hearts, we thank you for tonight, and Father, for your word. that is just um, uh, so incredible to be able to understand and to know what you are going to do. And yet much of this, Lord, does not apply to us, and yet the simple principles of sin and repentance do. And so cause us to understand this, Lord, and to not think that we are um, somehow excluded or an exception or in some privileged group that we don't have to worry about this. So, Lord, guard our hearts and that we would lift it to you, knowing that um, there's not one good thing in us, Lord. And so, Lord, we, we come before you. And, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be humble before you. And that we would truly always ex- express to you a genuine attitude of contrition and repentance that is genuine, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help us to allow you to strengthen our weaknesses and the Lord, you may be glorified. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. Or maybe you're over the Internet. Then the message to you is repent. That you would recognize where you stand before God. God is holy. Every one of us are sinful. And there is none that can say, I can make it to heaven on my own. The Bible says there's not one good, no, not one. The wage of the sin is death. My only hope is to turn to the Lord and ask him to forgive me. And to give me a new divine nature so I can please him and live the way he wants me to. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you want to accept him. This is your prayer of repentance and he's going to forgive you right now. And he'll give to you eternal life. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.